Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening where we will continue our reflections into the richness of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Now, this evening's reflection will predominantly be a tidying up of some reflections out from last week. On Wednesday of last week, we got into the cup of blessing. But in dropping a seed or a few seeds about what that cup of blessing was all about, um, you came back to me with some more questions. So we are going to get back into what that cup of blessing was all about, and we will do so within the context of the Passover Seder meal and the four cups of wine, alongside of just the larger construct of Passover, because on Thursday, I responded to your questions on the Eucharist by getting into Uh, the Passover meal. So really, again, today, this evening is going to be about a tidying up of Wednesday and Thursday and giving you some more construct, giving you some more uh, structure into how to better understand not only what is going on in 1 Corinthians 10, but also what is going to take place in 1 Corinthians 11. Because in so many ways, 1 Corinthians 10 sets up 1 Corinthians 11. And you will know what I'm talking about when we get into 1 Corinthians 11. Certainly the idea of one chapter setting up another should not be foreign to us by now, if you are a faithful listener. Because if we have come to appreciate anything here on Seeds of Truth, it is that seamlessness of sacred Scripture that we discover when we read one chapter in light of the next. As chapter 10 sets up chapter 11... I did think it was important to take a step back and re-examine some of the things we talked about last week in chapter 10 so as to better prepare us for chapter 11. And this is fortuitous for us because this also tidies up some things we talked about on Thursday. Now, before we jump back into chapter 10, I did just want to continue to welcome all of you faithful listeners out there who are tuning in by way of podcast in the countries of Brazil, Argentina, Chile, Uh, Central Mexico, Canada, Portugal, France, Spain, Italy, Croatia. I I now see uh, Poland on the grid, China, India, South Africa. It is a great joy that you are taking time out of your busy schedules to join me as we reflect into sacred scripture, the living word of God, this living word, this breathing word that hopefully is drawing you deeper into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay. With that, let us turn our attention to 1 Corinthians 10, and what I want to do is just reread 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14 to 22. Verses 14 to 22. Therefore, my beloved, shun the worship of idols. I speak as to sensible men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? 
because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices partners in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be partners with demons. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now, I don't know if I mentioned this last week, but you have a lot of questions in here by St. Paul. Remember, he is a master teacher, and so he is going to ask questions, questions that he knows will provoke his listening audience to ask new questions about what they are doing. Should we not do the same in our own pedagogy, in our own teaching. Now, this talk of the cup of blessing. Before we get into what I talked about last week as it relates to the cup of blessing as the third cup of wine, I do want to take a step back and bring to mind some of the things we talked about on Thursday, and to do so specifically with a mind's eye towards that more structured sequence into what God asks of the Israelites during Passover. If you were to go through chapter 12 of the book of Exodus, you see a series of steps in how they are to celebrate Passover, okay? The first is that they must choose an unblemished male lamb. That was the first step. That was the first thing you needed to do, huh? The second was that you needed to sacrifice the lamb. And part of this sacrifice was to what? not break a bone of the lamb. What do we read in Exodus chapter 12, verse 46? You shall not break a bone of it. So you have this call to choose an unblemished male lamb and to then sacrifice the lamb. After you have sacrificed the lamb, what do you do? But you spread the blood of the lamb onto the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses. What do we read in Exodus chapter 12, verse 7? Then they shall take some of the blood of the lamb and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat them. Now, the fourth step, and a very important step, is to eat the flesh of the lamb. Now, this is often a step that we forget about, but in point of fact, if you did not eat the flesh of the lamb, at the very least, your firstborn son would not be saved. So choose an unblemished male lamb, sacrifice the lamb, not breaking a bone of it, and then spread the blood of the lamb onto the doorposts and be sure that you eat the blood of the lamb, the roasted flesh of the lamb. And the last step, which we highlighted on Thursday, was to keep the Passover as a day of remembrance. We read in Exodus chapter 12, verse 14, this day shall be for you a day of remembrance and you shall keep it as a feast of the Lord. Throughout your generations, you shall observe it as an ordinance forever. So you have these five steps, if you will. The call to choose an unblemished male lamb. The need to sacrifice the lamb. The need to spread the blood of the lamb on the home as a sign of the sacrifice. The call to eat the flesh of the lamb with unleavened bread. Right, we should make note of that, of course. And lastly, step five every year to keep the Passover 
as a day of remembrance of the Exodus forever. After the Old Testament itself, there are a number of other uh, important Jewish sources. Now, I'm not going to get into all these sources, but at the very least, we certainly should highlight the Mishnah. The Mishnah, for those of you out there who are Jewish, you certainly know what the Mishnah is about, an extensive uh, collection of the oral traditions of Jewish rabbis who lived probably from 50 B.C. to 200 A.D. Most of these traditions that are found in the Mishnah are focused on legal matters, but also liturgical matters. The Mishnah, my friends, remains the most authoritative witness to Jewish tradition outside the Bible itself. And with that, I now want to turn our attention to the four cups of wine. And I am going to be drawing from primarily Dr. Brant Petre, Brant's book, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, Unlocking the Secrets of the Last Supper. I cannot encourage you enough to get this book have it on your bookshelf for you to read it. I know a number of you out there did get your hands on it. A very important book. If the Eucharist is the source and summit of our Christian and Catholic faith, certainly a book like this, a book titled Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, is going to be a book that you would be well served to not only have, but certainly to go through and read. And so I'm going to highlight some of um, his insights here, especially as they relate to the four cups of wine, as you have come back to me with some questions on what we talked about last week on the third cup of wine. With that, for starters, we should say that, that the four cups of wine is tied to the Passover Seder meal. Remember what I noted last week, the Hebrew word for Seder is order, right? Order. So the way in which the Passover Seder meal was ordered was under the construct of the four cups of wine, right? The first cup of wine, you had the introductory rites to the Seder meal. In the second cup of wine, you had the proclamation of the word. In the third cup of wine, you had the eating of the meal. And in the fourth cup of wine, you had the closing rites to the Seder meal. So those are the four cups of wine. Now let's get to them in some of their details. The introductory rites, this first cup of wine. According to the rabbis, the Passover meal itself would begin in the evening shortly before nightfall. And at this time, the father of the Jewish family would gather his household together at a large table. So there they would all recline around the table, apparently symbolizing very much the freedom won for them, right? Uh, by God in the Exodus from Egypt. Now, once this was done, the introductory rites of the Passover meal probably would begin with the pouring and mixing of the first cup of wine. Now, the mixing refers to the mingling of the cup of wine with a little water. The first cup was known as the cup of sanctification. The cup of sanctification. Uh, the Hebrew word there for sanctification is is Kiddush, right? Kiddush, the Kiddush cup. So once the first cup was poured and mixed, the father began the meal by saying a formal blessing over the cup of wine and the feast day. Uh, according to the Mishnah, the standard Jewish blessing over wine went something like this. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. So after this blessing was said, 
The food would be brought to the table and laid out before the father. Typically, as the Mishnah records, it consisted of at least four key dishes, several cakes of unleavened bread, a dish of bitter herbs, a bowl of sauce, and the roasted Passover lamb. What's really interesting here and something uh, Brand draws out is that the Mishnah refers to the last of these dishes, the roasted Passover lamb, as what? But the body. The body. Does that sound familiar? Well, what are we going to read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24? Remember what I already said. This is going to set us up for our study in 1 Corinthians 11. Well, what do we read in verse 24 of chapter 11? And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my body. So the language of body wasn't in the abstract at all. It was very specific to the Passover Seder meal. Now, at this point of the first cup, the cup of sanctification, a kind of preliminary course, what we would probably call appetizers, right, would begin. The father would take some of the bitter herbs, dip them into the sauce, and then eat them. And he probably did the same for others at the table. Once he finished this, the opening rites were ended. The introductory rites were ended. But the meal proper, the entree, if you will, had not yet to begin. So you have the second cup, the proclamation of Scripture. At this time, the second cup of wine would be mixed, but not drunk. This cup was known as the cup of proclamation. In Hebrew, the word for proclamation there is Haggadah. So in the first cup of wine, you have the Kiddush cup, and in the second cup of wine, you have the Haggadah cup, the cup of proclamation, huh? Now, why? Well, at this point in the meal, the Father would begin to proclaim, right, what the Lord had done for Israel when he set them free from Egypt in the Exodus. And uh, we should be in gratitude because the rabbis very much describe this second stage of the meal in some good detail here. If you were to go to the Mishnah, we'll go ahead and read some of the Mishnah here in just a few sentences. We're not going to go through all of this, but this is the Mishnah. Then they mix him, the father, the second cup. And here the son asks his father, why is this night different from other nights? For on other nights we eat seasoned food once, but this night twice. On other nights we eat leavened or unleavened bread, but this night all is unleavened. On other nights we eat flesh roast, stewed or cooked, but this night all is roast. And according to the understanding of the son, as the Mishnah records, his father instructs him accordingly. He begins with disgrace and ends with the glory. And he expounds on Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 5, how they were a wandering people. You see, in this way, we can already see that an important part of the Passover meal was the reading of Scripture and the act of looking back to the redemption one in the Exodus. This is certainly uh, very important, not only to the faithful Jew and the celebration of Passover itself, and what it means to remember. Remember that step five? Remember what God has done for you? But also put it into the context of the Last Supper. What does Jesus say? Do this in remembrance of me. Now, this is not all that the Father did. 
he would also explain the meaning of the parts of the Passover meal, the lamb, the bread, and the bitter herbs. According to the Mishnah, this had been required at least since the time of Rabbi Gamaliel. And who was Rabbi Gamaliel? But that great rabbi, the rabbi of all rabbis outside of Jesus Christ, who comes to us in Acts 5. He was a contemporary to Jesus. As recorded in the Mishnah, Rabban Gamaliel used to say, Whosoever has not said the verses concerning these three things at Passover has not yet fulfilled his obligation. And these are they, Passover, unleavened bread, and bitter herbs. Passover because God passed over the houses of our fathers in Egypt. Unleavened bread because our fathers were ransomed from Egypt and bitter herbs because the Egyptians embittered the lives of our fathers in Egypt. In every generation, a man must so regard himself as if he came forth himself out of Egypt. For it is written, And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, It is because of that which the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Therefore, listen to the Mishnah here, we are bound to give thanks, to praise, to glorify, to honor, to exalt, to extol, and to bless him who wrought all these wonders for our fathers and for us. He brought us out from bondage to freedom, from sorrow to gladness, and from the morning to a feast day, and from darkness to great light, and from slavery to redemption. So let us say before him the Alleluia. That is all from the Mishnah. What a beautiful, beautiful document the Mishnah is, huh? So, getting back to the essence of the second cup, the act of explaining the meaning of the meal was arguably the heart of this part of the meal, right? For one thing, it fulfilled God's original command to keep the Passover as a day of remembrance. Remember what we talked about in Exodus chapter 12, verse 14. In addition, it was the point at which the past significance of the Exodus and its present meaning merge into one. No matter how many centuries had passed, by explaining the meaning of the meal, each person was somehow made capable of sharing in the redemption one in the Exodus. Why did we talk at length about the principle of memory last week? Explain it as the chief faculty of the soul, because memory has that ability to not only have conversation with the past, but at once enrich the present moment, right? So given the explanation that was present in response, all of the Passover participants were bound to give thanks as the Mishnah records for what God had done for them. Now to express a spirit of thanksgiving at this point, they would sing Psalms 113 and 114. Psalms which praised the Lord for God's goodness and thanked him for saving Israel from Egypt. These two psalms, along with Psalms 115 to 118, were known as the Hallel Psalms, psalms of praise, which would be sung over the course of the entire meal, and we'll get to more of that here in a bit. So next, a third cup of wine would be mixed. It would signal the actual beginning of the supper itself, when the Passover lamb and the unleavened bread would finally be eaten. Now, as Brandt reflects, it's really hard to reconstruct exactly what took place at this point, as customs varied from place to place. However, we can conclude that it consisted 
of at least three basic steps. First, a blessing would have been said over the unleavened bread before the beginning of the meal. Uh, It would have gone something like this as the missionary records, Blessed are you, Lord God, who brings forth bread from the earth. Second, the meal probably began with the serving of an hors d'oeuvre, probably would have consisted of a small morsel of bread that would have been dipped in the bowl of sauce. And the third step here is after the appetizer, the main meal would have been eaten, consisting primarily of unleavened bread and the flesh of the Passover lamb. Now, once the meal itself was finished, the Father would say another blessing over the third cup of wine, and the third rite sharing the meal was complete. And we should say, uh, this is the cup of blessing, the third cup, and the Hebrew word for blessing is what but barakah, right? The barakah cup. And so here we arrive to the fourth cup, the cup that involved the concluding rites. Like most liturgies, this concluding cup, this last cup, these last rites were probably more concise. They consisted of two main parts. First, the remaining portion of the Hallel Psalms were sung, right? So I just talked about Psalms 113 and 114. Well, now Psalms 115 to 118 were sung, the last of which was known as the Great Hallel. Now, <laughs> I want you to listen to some of these psalms and put yourself at the Last Supper. And this is uh, Psalm 116, verses 12 to 17. What shall I render to the Lord for all his bounty to me? I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his holy ones. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your handmaid. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, is this not exactly what Jesus was doing at the Last Supper? He offered to God the sacrifice of thanksgiving, the new thank offering. What Greek-speaking Christians would have called what? Thanksgiving. What is the Greek word there? Eucharisteros or Eucharistia, thanksgiving. Even more striking than Psalm 116 is the last hymn that would have been sung, Psalm 18. Listen to these words. This is the Last Supper, right? (laughs) Out of my distress, I called to the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me sorely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Now, again, my friends, when the gospel accounts are placed in the context of Jewish scripture and Jewish tradition, can we not conclude that they suddenly spring forth to life with new meanings? And as Brandt puts it, astounding connections. Certainly, in this case, the words of the Hallel Psalms are almost a kind of script for the servant of God who would offer up a what? 
What did Psalm 116 verse 17 say? A sacrifice of thanksgiving. You know, in the midst of singing these Jewish hymns, could we not say that it would have been easy for Jesus to see his own fate as Messiah outlined in the words of the suffering servant of God described in the Psalms? After the singing of Psalm 118, the fourth cup of wine would be drunk. But according to the Mishnah, it was forbidden to drink any wine between the third and the fourth cups. This fourth cup of wine was known as the cup of praise, otherwise known in the Hebrew as the Hallel cup, right? When it was drunk, the Passover meal was complete. Now, Brandt gets into what was going on with the fourth cup of wine, and there's much to be had here. We're running out of time. But what I do want to do is, in fact, jump to the significance of those words, I thirst, and how we can conclude that Jesus did not drink the final cup of wine on the way to the cross, right? But he drank it at the foot of the cross, right? What do we read in John after this? Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A bowl full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the wine on hyssop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Notice what just happened here. When Jesus said, it is finished, he was not just referring to his life or his messianic mission. For he did not say it until his request for a drink had been answered. He did not say it until he had received the wine. Brothers and sisters, he did not complete the Passover meal until he had the wine, right? How important is it for us to see that by waiting to drink the fourth cup of the Passover until the very moment of his death, Jesus united the last supper to his death on the cross. And that really is the crowning point of what this is all about, and certainly one that Brandt and other uh, biblical scholars highlight. You see, my friends, by means of the Last Supper, Jesus transformed the cross into a Passover. And as Brandt puts it, by means of the cross, he transformed the Last Supper into a sacrifice. You see, in the end, my friends, the Passover was not only a sacrifice, but also a meal. And one forms and informs the other. The sacrifice to the meal and the meal to the sacrifice. You cannot have one without the other. This link between the Last Supper and the cross, between Holy Thursday and Good Friday, is at the very least worth pondering. It would be so easy for us to just say, yeah, when Jesus says it is finished, he's wrapping up his messianic mission. But we know that's not true because he still needs to descend, ascend, and ultimately <laughs> give us the gift of the Holy Spirit. There is no church without the resurrection. So it is finished is tied to something else. And when you put this in the context again of the four cups of wine, certainly you have something new to study. All right. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.
and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.